This podcast is brought to you by CEW Plus at the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor as we work to serve our community during this unprecedented time of change. Resiliency is best demonstrated in times of challenges. Join CEW Plus Director Tiffany Mara as she talks to students, staff, faculty, and community members connected to the University of Michigan's Center for the Education of Women Plus in our podcast, Strength in the Midst of Change. Just to introduce you to who I am and a little bit about the project. So I've been working at the university for 20 years, and one of my passions has always been to capture stories of strength at U of M as a way to inspire others. I've also found storytelling to be a powerful tool to highlight unique ways in which individuals demonstrate their strength when faced with challenges. This podcast project is a continuation of that work, and I'm very grateful that you're willing to speak to me about your experiences. Um, I was inspired by your participation in the town hall and was moved by your words and your guidance, and so wanted to continue that conversation. Yeah, of course. Okay. Would you mind starting out by introducing yourself and describing your path to U of M and your field of research? All right. So I am Rihanna Elise Anderson. I am an assistant professor at the University of Michigan School of Public Health, Health Behavior, Health Education Department. And I always describe myself as the accidental academic. There was nothing about my life prior to me going on the job market. And even while I was on it, that really underscored that I was going to be an academic. So I'm a Detroiter, born and raised. And my kind of slogan around that is I was born and raised for and returned to Detroit because I think Detroiters are a really unique group of folks. And so we, we need to really recognize that not for the faint of heart like people here really love their city and they love it hard and so I'm really pleased to be back here as a Detroiter I, I did not see professors I didn't think about the professoriate as a, a way to go and even my plan of, of being a child psychologist was not something that I saw often but really found a need for it and I'll kind of fast forward through everything but University of Michigan as my undergrad institution and then Teach for America shortly thereafter in Atlanta, a lot of the things that I, I learned in response to those things led me to this idea that you can't work directly with children and think that their family, the neighborhood, the community is going to change. You really have to think about how do we create systems of care between these spaces and, and places so that we can best support children. And we know that communities, families, neighborhoods, they're doing the best that they can too. So how do we really encourage what it is that they're already doing and bring some of the life lessons that we know as practitioners or as academics into the space? So again, I, I think I had a fairly circuitous route. I didn't go into grad school wanting to be a professor. I, I, I wanted really just to be a, a psychologist and think more deeply about creating these connections, and it became clear to me over time that by teaching at University of Virginia or working in the community in Charlottesville or when I was on internship or postdoc, all these things that I did, I was working in community spaces and finding that I could still be an academic, and I was still doing the things that I love to do in both spaces, and so it just opened up a, a wider window into what an academic could be, and I found myself fitting, though an untraditional mold, I still could fit within this space of doing what it was that I loved, writing about it, you know, going to talk about it and, and creating spaces and places to do that while also serving the community that I love very much. So that's, that's my route.
Yeah, it's a pretty interesting, it's a really interesting approach to serving students, taking a holistic perspective and really valuing all that the family and the community brings into the equation of student well-being or kid well-being. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, was there a point, was there a particular point where you realized where it hit you that this holistic model is uh, the way to go? I have a number of Teach for America stories. And, and if you ever listen to Teach for America folks, we all have this really traditional, like, first name, last name of a student. Like, Tavares Harris changed my life. And, and so Tavares Harris was one of my students, and Tiba Ellison was another. And both of their stories impacted me in ways that no textbook, no class, n like, nothing would have ever prepared me for. But to personally experience some interactions with, Tavares, who showed me how the foster care system in particular or various instances in his life created this discontinuity of care for him and how he found at school with me or with peers or with basketball, he found this continuity and, and, and this care. And so how could we, as a family within the school, better provide for Tavares? That was a question that I that asked a lot. He also shared something with me that I put in my graduate application, which was, and it, it may not have been remarkable for anyone else, but it was remarkable to me. It was, if I've been hurt, how can I not hurt others? And we've heard similar things to that about, you know, pain and, and how folks who receive it cause it. But when he said it so astutely at 12 and a half years old through tears, you know, one day after I pulled him out of a basketball practice for not doing homework, you know, we're, we're just like talking this through and he's, telling me about all of these things that he's experienced at 12 and mm -hmm. it, it shook me to my core that we wouldn't have an understanding of that before he even comes into my class like I it took us until well into the semester for that to happen for me to understand just how much pain he was experiencing I think just briefly and, and quickly about Santiba this young person who had repeated a grade and this was first grade so that's a really uncommon thing to have to do to repeat such a young grade and then you understand so many of the factors that go into Santiba's life and then you understand that Santiba had a cousin who you had the year before and this cousin was connected in this but you you start to just make these mental maps of wow now I understand who's in the house who you all are around and like how intervening just at one level with Santiba is not going to impact all the different systems and levels within like we really have to think about um, the family and the community that that you all live in as this connected network so they they both changed my life really seriously I both do it I do a quick little just semi stalkerish check-in like every few months I just go on Facebook to see you know how they're doing and I actually connected with Tavares recently which just warms my heart. But, you know, just check in with Santa Fe. Are you doing okay? Are you doing okay? Okay. Y'all good? All right. I'm doing all right. <laughs> That's great. How old are they now? Oh, Santa Oh, gosh. Let me do some quick mental math. That was... So she's 19, 1920. Tavares is about 27. Um, very grown, very married. And I'm like, what the heck? This is too much for me. <laughs> oh, yeah. It's... It's, you know, I taught for many years and yeah, that experience of running into an adult and now adult yes. who used to be a, you know, kindergarten or first grader is always shocking. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Yeah. So, um, you know, it feels like this point in history is different. You know, what is making now unique in comparison to history from your perspective? 
Can you say a bit more about what you mean about that? Yeah. So there's greater awareness about uh, black racism. There's greater awareness about police brutality. I mean, I grew up in L.A. where Rodney King um, happened, was videotaped. And so, Mm -hmm. you know, this has been present for a long time, well beyond George Floyd. And it feels like people are paying attention and want to create change, Mm -hmm. um, often with like, I don't know how to create change, but they're wanting to create change, which just feels like a different period in time. Yeah, because there's so much going on in the world. It was like, well, which angle are you coming at? Right. So, yes, I certainly think that and I, I often use the Rodney King police brutality event as a as a marker in these conversations about when people say, Well, I didn't realize racism was a thing or like I didn't, I didn't know that was going on. It's like you do remember and I, I start to name several things. But Rodney King is also an important milestone because the thought that video images are the things that are changing now is incorrect because we had that with Rodney King mm-hmm. as well. So what is different to me at this time relative to other times in history, this is this is my personal opinion, and I'm sure there's going to be think pieces for the end of time about why this is so unique. My perspective is that we were we went through two shifts in the past few months. So in March, when everyone was in their home and required to stay there to keep themselves and others safe. There was this idea of unity really for the first time in, in quite some time. And, and clearly we know that there were disparities even at the beginning with essential workers needing to go in, those essential workers being primarily of color. So mm-hmm. we understood that. But there was this thought that I want to make sure that everyone is safe and so I'm going to play my role. I'm going to do that. I'm going to, I'm going to keep myself and others safe. What we saw in our shifting from that unified sentiment was when some of the racialized data started coming out. And there are actually colleagues at Michigan who were advocates in not racializing the data because they feared exactly what was going to, or exactly what happened was going to happen, which was that if you start racializing and you're saying, oh, well, black people are four times as likely who have known someone who's passed away um, from COVID, six times as likely to have contracted it, et cetera. They, when, once you start breaking it out into these racialized data, people are going to be like, oh, it doesn't matter to me anymore. Okay, great. And then they're going to be the ones chanting for, I want a haircut, or they're going to be the ones pushing bars to open or um, totally disobeying some of the, the laws because it's not impacting them and it doesn't mm-hmm. matter to them anymore. So I, I indicate that because to me, that shift in everyone being unified to it's not happening to me, so it doesn't really matter, was such an important moment in these past few months because everyone at one point thought there could be nothing worse than this. There's just nothing that could could have happened that could have prepared us for this. Nothing could be worse than a global pandemic oh, my plans for 2020 are shot, like all these things that everyone has had hung their hats on were now changing in front of them. But then you had this shift toward black people who were seeing death and depravity and dysfunction and disease so much more than other communities. And so for them, there must have been a thought, there can't be anything worse than this because 
everyone in my community is being impacted in so many ways and we're going to zoom funerals all the time and we're you know we're just being hit so hard and then in a time where everyone should have been concerned about saving life a black person was killed in a manner in which it is not unique there is nothing particularly different about this quote chokehold that we saw that was applied by a knee rather than the, an elbow We've had it on video before. We've seen it before. So there's nothing particularly different about George Floyd, with the exception that for the past three months, everything that we've been doing has been about saving life. Mm -hmm. And yet this racial incident continues to occur. So that, that's my take on it in that the United States had grinded, well, in theory, we, we should have been grinding to a halt. That was clearly not the case with 120,000 dead, but in in theory, we should have been grinding to a halt. We should have been preserving life, and then we witnessed in one week George Floyd's death, several weeks later, Rashard Brooks, several weeks later, we have someone in mm -hmm. Los Angeles or you know, the Latinx community. Like we, we, we are experiencing what has always been a part of the American fabric in, in the midst of us trying to save lives. That is something that just won't be suppressed. It's just bubbling up. It's, it's a part of us. It, we can't help it. So that's what, to me, feels really different this time. Even as, as you described it, it made me realize, okay, we all were in it together. Right. And now well, it's not affecting my community, so I can go back to status quo. It's right. racism in a new form. Um, our response to COVID was racism in a new form. It doesn't affect me and my community. And so now I can go back to doing what I'm privileged to do. And yet okay. the communities that are still suffering the hardest, they need to do what they need to do and get it under control. Including what we saw with the pointing of fingers toward black people on their own behavior. So, you know, the, the highest ranking black medical official is pointing fingers at black people saying, if you all just stop drinking and smoking as much, it wouldn't be this bad for your community. And it, that was one of the most disrespectful things that not only could be said to the black community, but such a dangerous thing to impart upon other communities, mm -hmm. which was that all of this is just behavioral. And, and within the public health world, we know that that is just absolutely nonsensical. It, it, is, it is dangerous to point to individual behavior when there are complete systems that have been impacting what black people are going through in these past few months and, and really our entire existence here in the United States. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it, it denies the systemic challenges around the school-to-prison pipeline, around public health disparities that have existed for hundreds of years. All of that is washed away if we just call it race. Right. That's right, because That's you're right. no longer looking at SES, you're no longer lo looking at the conditions of the community, but you're just right. focusing on color of people's skin. It's so frustrating. <laughs> it, is. it is. It's super frustrating. And one thing that's actually helpful, if I can just throw this in here, what it, I said this yesterday, we had a church panel on what racial justice looks like. This occurred to me when I was teaching this past semester. I found an article that, that really helped me to explain how this works. So we talk about systems all the time. Mm -hmm. We talk about transportation, health, nutrition, you know, education, et cetera. 
And then we also talk about racism as a system. And I used to describe it as such. And then this article that I came across, a Reskin 2012 article, shows racism. It, it shows discrimination. But racism at the center of all of these interconnected structures and all these interconnected systems. So there's no way you could have an educational system if racism wasn't embedded in that from the beginning. You, the, the educational system that we have today could not exist if people truly thought that black children and Latinx children and uh, children of, of all backgrounds should be getting equal education. There's no way that my Detroit classroom should have had 45 students, so many that there weren't enough computers for each student. And so we're now on, you know, coupled up on computers. And I went to the best high school in Detroit. Like there, there's no way mm -hmm. that you can argue that my educational experience would have been acceptable in a suburb, just one suburb over from Detroit. That that's, That is not okay. If not racism, if, if you can't, blame it on racism and so it's important for us to understand that racism is not just a system it is the central system it's the relay station that allows all of these other systems which are interconnected anyway to flourish in such a disproportionate and, and unequal way mm -hmm. yeah and the the systems that are in place to support that go down to how are schools funded how are teachers yeah. recruited how much are teachers making how yeah. are schools positioned based on rating scales by random third-party organizations? All of mm -hmm. that just reinforces this racist tension within our schools and across all the systems. Yeah, it's, it's a great way to position it as kind of the center of this wheel with spokes pointing out in different directions. You know, with all of this going on, what are you most proud of as having navigated? I, I'm a very spiritual and religious person and so I don't see myself navigating anything but I, I am grateful to God for the provision of life of, of sparing me what may have happened um, so I I cannot say for certain but I had every single COVID symptom including loss of taste and smell I have a community of folks who were bringing me food and consistent social support, making sure that I was alive and well. And again, you know, we're, we're tagging it back to because people were dying here, right? People my age mm -hmm. who were community leaders were dying in Detroit. And uh, one of my best male friends um, had just witnessed a, a very close colleague pass away. And then I'm telling him that I have symptoms. But he, he, I've never seen him behave the way that he did in like coming over almost every day, dropping off. But, you know, just there was a community of people that made sure that I survived. So that that's what I'm most grateful for is that God fought to it, that I could get through those symptoms and that my community came together to ensure that that was the case. Yeah, what strategies are you using to take care of yourself? Yeah, that's a bad question. Let's move on. <laughs> yeah, I, I suck. I, I have been doing really well, especially after recovery. I was just limiting my emails and, like, you know, was only working a certain amount of hours for the day. I was really kicking fish, and I was creating boundaries that were impressive because I traditionally suck at them throughout the school year, too, but was really proud of myself for creating boundaries. 
And then a few weeks ago, when we had a racial revolution here in the United States, then people started calling and the requests started coming in. And I feel like, you know, for such a time as this, like that's that's what I'm here for. And so I've just really blown my boundaries to bits. I have just been taking call after call and it, it is not good for me. So saying that out loud is really good accountability. So thank you for that. So I'm not doing a good job of that, but I am working out and I'm, you know, going out into the community just to take walks or bike ride and seeing other people, whether it's a distance walk with other folks or like just seeing neighbors as I'm walking around has just brought a lot of light and energy to me. So that is my, I'm not doing so great, but I'm working on it answer. Sure, that's fair. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Well, it sounds like your spirituality actually carries you quite a bit as well and that you've been practicing faith. So um, let's see. An interesting change as well that I've been noticing is very differing responses to the term ally. What is your response to that term? Essentially, I think ally used to mean a range of things, anywhere from I support you to I'm out on the front line. And people in the past few weeks, have just been making it really clear that one of them is to say that just having you as a colleague or a peer or someone who I know supports me but is not doing the work, like that's that's cool, but you're not going to like reach the other level of this term until you get out there and you are either on the front line or putting your money where your mouth is or writing to people that you know can make a difference using your privilege in a way that that releases some of your own power to ensure that other people are doing well. So I think there's just a push now of um, your agency really has to come from a place that's not words or acknowledgments or, or thoughts and prayers, as you might say, if this were a gun you know, violence-related issue. But it, it has to walk out this cause. Okay. Now, in the, in the town hall... Um, you were very intentional in mentioning two things for individuals to consider as they fight for justice. Can you dig a little deeper into the phrases level and lane and also talk, walk, and chalk? Level and lane for me goes back to what we were just saying. So say that you are a president of an organization and you're asking, well, what is it that I can do, right? And you, you want to know from a maybe a thought thought partner perspective or like, you know, what, what can I say? What can I, what can I contribute? Well, you're a president of an organization. So you have a number of tools at your disposal within the organization, but you also have likely neighboring organizations with whom you work or collaborative events or, or something of the sort that convenes you. So you have a lot of power and it will behoove you to understand how to collectively advocate amongst other presidents to, to push for equal pay or raises during this time for folks who have undoubtedly lost someone within their family uh, wages, right? Like, how, how can you push forward an agenda as the president of something? So, so that's, that's a level-setting parameter. Within your lane, if you're the president of, say, you know, a, a food corporation, like, how can you ensure that people who need to eat are getting their needs met? How can you assure that you are even taking care of your your own employees? But your lane in that way is food. You don't have to jump over 
to the policing realm, but that's not necessarily what you know, and that's not necessarily what your strength is. But because, again, all of these systems are connected, you don't have to think of your contribution as lesser than. It's just different. And so we all need to focus on the individual lanes that we are in and to the extent that we have levels that we can ascend up to or, or to leverage, then we should be willing to go about doing the work that we need to do at that level as well. So that's what I mean by level and lane. The talk, walk, and chalk metaphor comes from a lot of the work that we do in my lab. So we are a racial socialization lab. We think about how black folks have the talk with their children about race. That's something that has been in the literature now for decades. And we thought that was a fine strategy to have the talk, but because I'm an applied psychologist, I think about how do we walk out what it is that we're talking. So you want your child to be well. You want your child to have pride in their culture. You want them to not be harmed in the face of, of racial danger. How can we ensure that when your child is in these spaces that they're engaging in some of the things that you have asked them to do? So not only is the talk important, but walking out the talk is something that we would encourage there. So I, I started with that framework of, of, okay, we want people to have these talks, which are important, like we did at the town hall. So the, the talk is really important. And I, I, as I indicated in the town hall, I don't think that we should poo-poo having conversations. It, it is impossible to jump straight to the walk. You have to know what you want to say, how you're thinking about it, how people in your organization are thinking about it. But it's not okay to be stuck there. So you can't just keep having the talk. So the talk has to lead to the walk. And then what I meant by chalk, which was unique for the the panel and and something I haven't said before, the chalk is really about policy. How can we write things into the fabric of our organization once we walk this thing out? Undoubtedly, once Rich Floyd's name is no longer trending as a hashtag on Twitter. Once we forget Rashard's last name, like inevitably happen, or once the things that we you know don't hold as much esteem right now inevitably happen, people are going to lose their momentum, and it happens every time. Mm-hmm. And another thing, another incident happens, and then it sparks up another wave. What is important and critical is policy, and there's no way that we're going to be able to to have a better world if we constantly have to create a fire every time something like this happens. So it's, it's crucial that policies that will enable students of color to get an education at places like Michigan are implemented in what we say we want, you know, from our institution. We can't just, we can't just say having a 4% African-American student rate is acceptable. Mm-hmm. When I was a student, it was 8%. We know that it's it's been decimated by things like Prop 2 and et cetera, but, but it's not okay just to say we want more. How are we going to do that? Let's get that in our policy. Let's write that down as a goal because setting goals, having visible, tangible things that we want to do are not just helpful for us in theory. It, it psychologically aligns us to a point where we're going to get there and it holds us accountable because people can say it's been 10 years y'all haven't moved this needle we need to replace whoever you know is in charge of these types of initiatives so that's what i mean by lane and level and that's what i mean by talk walk and talk 
Oh, that's very helpful. Thank you very much. Now, I know I'm already over time, but if you're up for it, I've got two more questions that are a little more lighthearted to end the podcast on. Let's do it. All right. So the first one is a lot of us are binge watching a lot of stuff right now. Um, is yeah. there anything that you're binge watching that you would recommend to others just to help us get through this period? Oh, gosh, so many things. Okay, let's see. The trashiest thing that I've watched was Selling Sunset, which is on Netflix, and it is a quote-unquote reality show about realtors on Sunset, which is a very expensive place, a strip of land in um, L.A. And as someone who used to live in L.A., I always look for L.A.-based stuff that I can watch. Um, and it was just preposterous. $10 million for homes, $40 million for homes, and I'm just sitting there like, Monopoly money. It was just so great just to like <laughs> be in a space where nothing mattered, nothing existed, all of this was fake, and I was just like, wow, this is so amazing. So if you really just want to not like live in the real world, go ahead and watch Selling Sunset. Clearly Tiger King, that happened months ago, but I hope everyone in the United States at this point has watched it. We'll stop there. But some there's such good trash on there, so you know, get yourself <laughs> living. Yeah. The These are real people. Thing the best thing that's ever happened like to life yeah for sure okay and then the final final question is do you have an inspirational thought or quote um, that you'd like to share something that my colleague and i said my colleague and i are developers of our mental health minute which is a like a psycho entertainment kind of one minute video and then maybe 10 minute podcast that we typically do about mental health issues within the black community and we were supposed to be on break this summer and then a racial revolution ensued and we thought we had to say something so our 10 to 15 minute podcast turned into a 40 minute podcast where we just started going in about how we were feeling and one thing that um, I noted in our conversation was that um, breathing is an act of resilience right now and so I want to leave folks with that, that there's, it's not lost on me that when people say, I can't breathe, we are talking about, and we can talk about that metaphorically, we can talk about that literally, there, there are so many reasons that breathing is challenging in the midst of a racial encounter. So it's our sympathetic nervous system that gets impacted, our ability to regulate our air when we are fearful of the outcome. There's so many things that are happening in that moment, psychologically, physiologically. And then when people actually obstructing your ability to breathe, this resistance of I'm going to take a calm breath in the face of these incredible challenges as a way to fight against what it is that you're trying to do to me. I'm going to actually take breath. I'm going to breathe. I'm going to do that for myself. And something within the black community that I think is often very challenging is taking the time and breathing. We are constantly trying to help so many people, least of all ourselves. And so finding that time at the end of the day, at the start of the day, the middle of the day, to focus on breath, to breathe deeply, and to say my ability to breathe in this moment is an act of resistance against a respiratory disease, against the injustice in police violence. It, it is a revolutionary act. It is an act of resistance. I'm going to choose my breath today. Thank you for that. That was very inspirational. You know, thank you so much for your time, Dr. Anderson. It's been a pleasure talking to you, and I feel honored to be able to have had this conversation. 
Thank you for listening to CEW's podcast, Strength in the Midst of Change. To learn more about this episode or the services and virtual programming offered by CEW+, please visit cew.umich.edu. Here at CEW+, we navigate circumstantial barriers by providing academic, financial, and professional support to help you reach your personal potential. Established to support women through higher education, we lift up women and all underserved communities at the University of Michigan and beyond. Through career and education counseling, funding, workshops, events, and a diverse, welcoming community, we exist to empower. We are CEW+, and we are here to help you reach your potential. The University of Michigan resides on the traditional territories of the three fires peoples, the Ojibwa, Odawa, and Potawatomi.